0: This episode is brought to you by IVP. Have you ever been thrust into a surprising place of leadership? In her book, The Leader in You, Ebony S. Small invites you to discover your unique leadership gifts and skills so that you can embrace those opportunities when they come. And she helps you recognize how God can use all your life experiences for good so that you can lead with greater health and authenticity. And as a listener of this podcast, you can receive The Leader in You for 25% off when you use the promo code IVPOD25, that's IVPOD25, at IVPress.com. This is IVP. I had uh, several former students who went into churches and they had very strong convictions that there shouldn't be an American flag on the platform behind the pulpit. And so what they would do is to immediately go in, take the flag, and just take it off somewhere. It was like rapture the flag, yeah. <laughs> sort of a game that was going on. And I would have to come in and say, no, that's this is not the time to do that.
1: Welcome back to The Disruptors, a podcast from InterVarsity Press. Today, we're talking to Russell Moore about navigating political dysfunction in our churches and families, healthy relationships to authority and institutions, and how disillusionment can be a surprising gift. Russell Moore is editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. He is the author of several books, including Losing Our Religion, An Altar Call for Evangelical America, The courage to stand, facing your fear without losing your soul, and onward, engaging the culture without losing the gospel. I think you will be both encouraged and convicted by our conversation today. Dr. Moore, thank you so much for joining us today for The Disruptors.
0: Oh, well, thanks for having me.
1: I want to start out by asking you about a book that I read of yours quite a while ago that I have with me on Word that you published in 2015. Because in so many ways, it seems like the themes in that book are sort of familiar to your new one. Um, But going back and reading it, it both feels sort of prescient for what 2016 would be, but also a little more optimistic, maybe, than your most recent book is, or maybe a little lighter in tone. Yeah. When you think back to that in twenty fifteen, which is wildly almost ten years now from from now in your new book, how do you evaluate it? Has your perspective changed? I think a lot of us, I was at least introduced to you through this book. Are there ways that you look back on it and want to change things, or are there ways that you look back at it wistfully? Or how do you evaluate the last ten years in which so much has changed for you? I,
0: I don't think that I would change anything in onward. I would still be there. I mean, the subtitle is Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. That first part of it, I'm where I've always been or or where I've been for a very long time. It's the losing the gospel. I think uh, in 2015, I perhaps did not see how quickly the gospel could be lost in various contexts. And also, I think the, the thing that I would not take away but add to it, is a lot of Onward is about uh, the collapse of cultural Christianity uh, in the Bible Belt as well as, as elsewhere. And that's true, and that has uh, happened. One of the things I would add to it, though, is the replacement of it in a lot of contexts with a different form of cultural Christianity, or actually with a couple of different to different forms, one of them popular and one elite. Uh, so you can see the popular one form of cultural uh, Christianity in the way that not only do people not have to be a part of a church to be regular people in the Bible Belt, which is what I was talking about in Onward, they can though now Uh, see themselves entirely as Christians and as activist religious Christians without being part of any uh, Christian community at all, simply by being online. And then the the more elite uh, form is the kind of uh, resurgence of what we now call uh, Catholic integralism, Christian nationalism, and its Maybe sort of more Protestant form, those things I think uh emerged a lot maybe not a lot quicker than I thought, but with a lot more explicitness than i I probably would have thought in twenty fifteen.
1: I was really moved uh reading your new book, losing our religion, and I heard from many people that they were similarly moved um in a way that reading onward I really enjoyed as a you know new seminary student, but it wasn't quite so moving as losing our religion was. And I think part of the reason so many people have responded that way is because you so well describe the sense of betrayal and disillusionment people have felt. You know, maybe reading Onward, I thought, oh, I see these problems in my church or in my seminary. They didn't feel so visceral or so heartbreaking in the way they do now. And I really appreciated in the new book how you talked about some of the gifts of disillusionment, maybe how disillusionment could could prompt us towards some better ways. And I think a lot of people listening to the podcast feel that sense of disillusionment, but maybe don't see how it could be a gift or see how it could motivate some new way forward. Can you talk a little bit about how disillusionment could be oriented towards something better?
0: Every time I've ever written a book, it's because I'm grappling through something, uh, either in my own life Um, Adopted for Life, uh, for instance, was essentially, it came out of my realizing uh, when we adopted our our first two sons, I was looking back on my initial reluctance to do that and the reasons for that reluctance and uh, wondering where does that come from. So I I was working through that. When it comes to this book, it was mainly... Uh, my grappling with the pull to cynicism and in my own life, a little bit, um, but in conversations with, I mean, every day, it's (laughs) literally every day, uh, these, these conversations. And I think the pull to cynicism, it can happen in more ways than just one. It can happen with a kind of cynical, because I've been betrayed, that means I can never trust anybody or anything again. So I'm going to close myself off, uh, or at least be hyper vigilant about sort of not giving myself to any sort of relationship or or community. Uh, Or cynicism can show up in the sense of, well, this is how the game is played, so I need to play it. And uh, there are a lot of people who have lost their religion, but are very religious people, because that's the kind of cynicism they're drawn to. I think actually there's a kind of disillusionment though that is more literal in in terms of the losing of illusions. Uh, But without this tendency, and I think I think a lot of people have it It and maybe more in evangelical America than elsewhere, this sense of whatever was the last bad thing the answer to that is the complete opposite of it, which is just not not the way of Jesus at all, but that's the way we often uh, respond. And so I think there's a kind of disillusionment that can say, okay, now is a time of sorting through what was real and what was false. It can be a kind of examination of self and of context that can lead to some, some really good things as long as it doesn't... Give way to cynicism. So, for instance, I was just telling somebody yesterday uh, somebody was visiting our church who had come out of a really, really bad church situation. And I said, one of the really unusual things about this church is that there are a lot of people who've come out of really bad uh, church situations but you don't see people kind of looking behind them all the time to make sure it's not chasing them. Sometimes you can have in those situations, everything is always whatever it is that you encountered last in a way that causes you not to see sometimes what's, what's headed at you from the other direction. But that kind of disillusion. that's why I don't uh, freak out about people who are deconstructing. I think a lot of them actually are just working through what it is that they believe and they'll be fine. They they they're just mm-hmm. needing to they're needing to examine that and they're using that kind of language. Uh so I think I think there's a good healthy form of disillusionment.
1: Yeah, and it really relates we're spending the whole season of this podcast talking about what needs to be disrupted in ourselves like what internal work do we need to do to be the kind of people that can do good work in the church and in the world are there things that you as someone who has been in public life for quite a while now has found helpful in terms of internal practice like means of placing yourself in accountability practices that help you stay focused or humble because that that's really what i i want to bring to especially younger christians is like you might have seen some of the problems of past generations how do you not just replicate either opposite problems, as you described, or actually strangely like the same problems? Because you might have gotten rid of some of the externals, but this, you know, the kind of posture is the same. How do we do that kind of internal work to be the kind of people who can do this well?
0: Well, this is going to sound really simple. And it is uh, when I say prayer and, and Bible reading uh, is, the, is the first step. The latter is a lot easier for me. Uh, it is not difficult for me to read the Bible every day because I mm-hmm. love it, but it is very difficult for me to pray, uh, both in terms of finding the time to pray and sometimes sometimes i 'll have this attitude that even even though I know intellectually that this isn 't right i 'll kind of get in this mode where I believe I have to be in the right sort of uh, emotional zone yeah. or kind of <laughs> vibe to to pray, and I have to work through that. But that's the that's I think the the first step. And then, of course, beyond that, when you say a community, what what I've found is helpful for me is communities plural, uh, in the sense that I need uh, I need the church. I also need groups of people who know me enough to be able to call me out on things that they see you know, in in my life and who I can be really honest with in a way that wouldn't. I mean, sometimes there's a, a tendency if you're in some sort of public ministry position, whether that's a pastor or in, in whatever way, it's not that you're lying but you can't be completely honest without scaring people. So, you know, if the pastor stands up and gets really honest about where he is at that moment, there are going to be a lot of people who will get scared because they'll think, oh, is, is our, our pastor losing his faith or is our pastor about to quit or, or whatever? So you need that group of people who can be with you. And what I've found is, at least in my situation, that can't happen artificially. In terms of, okay, here's this small group of people, you're accountable to them. Now, I think that's fine. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. But it has to be, uh, you know, if you think of uh, Lewis's uh, imagery of side-by-side uh, friendship, it has to be like that. I have two groups of uh, people in my life where we're kind of, uh, it's not that we're pretending. We are actually doing what we say we're assembled to do but that's not the primary reason that we're assembling together and we know it. So, uh, I have a, a group of uh friends we meet together for a book club. We do talk about the books, but <laughs> it, it it is a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh and then a, a group of um of friends here, uh we would get together uh during the height of the pandemic, we would get together outside and uh, kind of distanced away from each other, but we were reading T.S. Eliot's four quartets together. And it was the same thing. It was, we really wanted to read four quartets together because we were all, we were, we had all been really affected by, um, by that. But it was about more than that too. And there was a sense of, you can come into that space and exhale and know uh, whatever it is that I'm going to say There are going to be people who are going to challenge me and push back on it, but there's not going to be anybody who's going to walk away. You know, there's just so much invested there. So that's what I found to be helpful for me.
1: And even hearing you say that, I'm thinking about, you know, in Losing Our Religion, you talk about the moments where you realized, oh, there are people involved in this for the power. They're not really, they don't really believe the things that I thought we all believed. And I was so struck reading it. Again, I continually keep thinking about, you know, people my age who are, you know, a few years out of seminary, they're pastoring in a church or they're leading a Bible study and they read something like that and they go, how do I be the kind of person that could hear what's happening and go, oh, that's I know that's not the way of Jesus. This is wrong and not have after years of being in whatever it is, the institution, the church, whatever, have been formed such that I share those kind of wayward goals that these folks have how can I discern in the moment if I'm being shaped in that kind of way?
0: Well, I think the the most helpful thing, at least for me, is having both negative and positive models. Mm. And what I mean by that is to say being, I, I served, in, well, I say, I, I say this like it was past tense. This has been the case all through my life. There have been really bad bad situations and decisions that I've seen being made, and I've seen people who have lost themselves, and I need to ask, well, how did that happen? What does that person... So like you're saying, these are not people who said, I'm going to do a long con and go into mm-hmm. Christian service, so that I, that's yeah. not the way they think. And so to say, how does that happen? What is the story that one tells to oneself? Uh, to get to that point, so look at those specific places. I have noticed when I started to hear myself say some things. Oh wait, hmm. I've heard that before. I, I've I've seen that before, and this is the direction it's going. So you do need the negative um, model, but you also need those positive models of uh, people that you can look at and see. The way that these things have, have worked out. So, for instance, for me, there are several, but I can think of, uh, I can think of two of the really major ones. Uh, my boyhood pastor, who I have seen serve in really, really difficult situations and always had this sense of tranquility about him. And I would – and it wasn't – you could tell it wasn't an act because I was with him sort of behind the veil. And I, I would say, OK, where does that come from? How how does he get that? Or um, very early on in my life, I, I served on staff for a United States congressman, Gene Taylor. Our youngest son, Taylor, is named for him. He was a member of a political party that was different than the political party of the majority of his district. And he was out of step with his own political party on some really major things. Uh, and I have seen him. I've been in the room with him where he has been under real pressure to abandon things that he really believes in. And he wouldn't do it. He, as Roseanne Cash said about her dad, Johnny Cash, he didn't bend. He didn't even almost bend. And so you see that and then you say, OK, where does that come from? And how is that different? Because when I was uh, working for him, I would have naturally be talking to uh, people who were working for all all kinds of other members of Congress and other elected officials. And most of them were kind of disillusioned. You know, they had this idealized vision of somebody and they said, oh, this is just awful. And I would say, what's the difference here? And then when you start, again, what's the story that person is telling uh, to himself or, or herself? And what are the little decisions that get you to this point? I think you, you have to find those people and they're there and you don't have to be really very close to them necessarily. You just have to
1: watch. What was the difference, you think, in the congressman, that th- those little decisions or stories that he was telling himself?
0: Well, one of them is he had a life he didn't see himself first as united states congressman and he was perfectly willing to lose an election he never wanted to be uh you know you would have these uh these people who came in at one meeting and said if you don't change your positions on these things you're never going to be uh you're never going to have opportunities at national off uh, in national office and I had to stop myself from laughing because like, he, <laughs> he is what he is. And I would say uh, there was a time when there was a, a Senate seat that looked like it was coming up. And um, I said, you know, why don't you do that? And we're, we're from a kind of the wild part of Mississippi. Uh, we're the casino gambling Catholic uh, <laughs> New Orleans-y part of Mississippi. And he said, come on. You really think that they're going to vote for me in Tishomingo County? Are you (laughs) going to go up there and get them to vote for me? So he didn't have the – he knew what his aspirations were and what they weren't, and he was perfectly willing to go back home and to live his life, which is what he did. He he ultimately was defeated in 2010 and – uh, he he didn't go home a broken shell of a person.
1: That really makes me think too about – I think one of the tensions in a lot of these conversations that I have with people about politics is on one hand, there's this sense where people get kind of warped into thinking, I've just got to do whatever the pragmatic thing is, yeah. which goes into what you talk about in the book of like protect the leader at all costs because we're doing such good work. That's a logic that's powerful. But on the other hand, I think sometimes people can respond to that and go – I'm going to be kind of a perverted idea of the prophet where mm. I really don't listen to anyone else. I'm very convinced of what is right. I want to flip tables, maybe for the drama of it right. more than the justice. Yeah. And I'm just curious how you would describe that tension because I feel it when I'm talking to people. If On one hand, I want to say, yeah, you have firm convictions that you d- you're you not willing to sacrifice, But when does that turn into actually a lack of listening to people or an ability to compromise if you are and maybe people who listening are even thinking of elected office, even in a really local sense and going, where's the line between moral compromise that I shouldn't do and good, healthy, like democratic compromise, where I recognize that I might feel strongly about this, but I'm a finite and fallen creature and I, I might need other people to correct me.
0: There is that line because there are going to be all kinds of things that you wouldn't necessarily do but that you're able to bear with. So mm-hmm. for instance, I had uh, several former students who went into churches and they had uh, they had very strong convictions that there shouldn't be an American flag um on the on the platform behind the pulpit. And so what they would do is to immediately go in, take the flag and just take it off somewhere. So it was like rapture of the flag, yeah. sort of a game that was going on. And I have to come in and say, no, that's this is not the time to do that because uh, you've got to explain and to to teach people first of all why you're going to do that if you are. Secondly, it's not that big of a deal right now. You've got much bigger things uh, to to worry with, and so even these kinds of things that you wouldn't have have chosen to do, you can live with them. They're not going to, I mean, we all do that every uh, single day. But there is that line, just like there is in our personal moral lives, that when we step over it, we we have started to do something else. And sometimes it's hard to see where that line is. So the counsel that I give to people constantly, and again, when I say literally every day, it is it is just about every day that I find myself saying this. You have to know where your own default weak point is in order to get a really good read uh, on this. So if your default is to sort of throw over tables, then you need to overcorrect. And when in doubt, just spend a lot of time thinking. Okay, maybe I'm wrong. What what's happening here? And if your default is where where my uh, weakness was more, with a kind of institutional loyalist, and you want people to like you, and you don't, then you need to spend a lot of time overcorrecting of saying, okay, wait, what what's happening to to me? All of us are going to be looking at both ends of that, but you have to intentionally sort of put a lot of weight on on the one where you have where you have the weak point.
1: And that goes back to what you were saying about community too of like do you have people that can help you discern where am i overemphasize it like where am i tempted to land and i need correction in the other direction um which is yeah. really helpful.
0: Yeah and you have to find i mean one of the things there was a big decision uh, that i was making and normally i can trust my gut intuition. I can't trust my mind all the time. I can't trust my heart uh, a lot of the time. But I can trust my gut usually. But I was making a really big decision. And what I decided I needed to do was to spend time talking to people who fit into three categories. They knew me, they knew the situation, and they didn't have an interest in it one way or the other. And it wasn't so much about I needed to make the right decision as it was I needed to know that I was making the right decision. And I I knew that I could could talk myself back by saying, well, that person knows me, but they don't know really what this is like and what's going on. Uh, or yeah, they just, they 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 want me to be doing this thing because it helps them. I had to find people where that could not be the case uh, at all and spend a lot of time with them. And there were really close friends that I really didn't talk to about that. Not because I don't trust them, but because I would say, um, they really care about me and they don't know the situation well enough to really make an informed decision about it. I then went to those those kinds of people over an extended time. But what that took was what I had to know is, okay, what do I normally do that trips me up? And one of those things is when I'm getting counsel from outside community, especially when it's counsel that is affirming. As a matter of fact, it's almost always in in that case. When it's counsel that's affirming, what I find that I typically do is to find the ways where that person wouldn't say that if he or she really knew Hmm. what was uh, Mm -hmm. going on. There was a a situation I was second-guessing, and second-guessing, second-guessing for years. I would look back and say, oh, I think I made the wrong decision on that. And everybody, oh, you know, everybody that's close to me would say you made the right decision. It was it, it was clear, and I would say, yeah, but they don't know this or they don't know that. They can't see this. They can't see that. And there was this older guy who said, yeah, let's just assume you made a terrible decision. Then what? And it was it was absolutely liberating.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, that's what I needed in that yeah. in that moment because I was able to see. Okay, this is where I this is where i trip myself up. yeah. and people can do that in many different kinds of ways.
1: i want to read you a version of john 3:16 that you may have never heard before. it goes like this. the great spirit loves this world of human beings so deeply, he gave us his son, the only son who fully represents him. all who trust in him and his way will not come to a bad end but will have the life of the world to come that never fades, full of beauty and harmony. This verse is an example of the First Nations version, a unique indigenous translation of the New Testament. It captures the simplicity, clarity, and beauty of native storytellers in English, while remaining faithful to the original language of the Bible. If you would like your own copy of the First Nations version, stay tuned until the end of the episode to find out how you can get a 25% discount at ivypress.com. You said something earlier about your bent being towards institutional loyalty. Mm -hmm. And I'd be curious to hear you say more about that because I, reading your book, I was appreciative of the kind of balance there because I feel like among some of my peers who have, you know, Many of us like came of age in the 2016 election and it felt like our adult experience of Christianity was just a lot of disillusionment and sense of betrayal and confusion about who to trust and who was a moral authority. And then I fear we can overcorrect and kind of go, there's no authority over my you know, faith or any decisions I make. And I'm really uninterested in institutions entirely because I've seen blind loyalty to them cause people to justify abuse of humans made in God's image. And then I worry that like again we kind of replicate you know the same problems or parallel problems. How would you articulate how we can have a positive but balanced sense of authority and of institutions where we don't end up in either either completely disregarding them or ending up in a place where we're just kind of blindly loyal or deferential to authorities that might be really leading us astray.
0: Well, the first thing is to realize that um, there's a kind of anti-institutionalism that leads to the place we are. Uh, and, and what I mean by this is you will have a uh, – uh, Jonathan Last, uh, commentator uh, over at the, the Bulwark, uh, says there is nothing that bad guys ever do that isn't because there were good guys who didn't care or who would rationalize it away. And that's true. So, if you have people for whom the institutions aren't important, and you know they'll give them attention sometimes, but then they check out the rest of the time, and the people who are really committed to changing or to directing those institutions in some way have a different interest in doing that, then you end up with this kind of situation. And if you have uh, the minute that you evacuate legitimate authority. The result of that can be anarchy for a little while, but it always ends up with authoritarianism. It always does. And so you have to have those institutions and you have to have that accountability within the institutions, and that is really difficult to do. And the reason it's difficult to do is because we're in this time of – uh, ferment. I was talking to a journalist uh, the other day who said, and I think he's right, he is that, you know, everybody thinks that they're living at a huge turning point in history. But I actually think this is, and I do too. So you think about the, the Reformation. How do you decide whether to stay in the Catholic Church and to try to reform the indulgences system and when to nail the theses to the door? And when to start something completely new. Uh, I mean, all of those questions, those were not easily discerned in the 16th century. And it's not easily discerned right now to say, "Okay, what are the institutions that actually have lost their reason for being? And we're just kind of weekend at Bernie's keeping them alive uh, because we're accustomed to them. And what are the institutions that actually can be reformed and we ought to reform? And what are the new institutions that we need? That is not easy. You you can't do that at a retreat. You know, that (laughs) that takes years and years Mm -hmm. and years of thinking through.
1: As you were answering that, I was thinking of some of my friends who either – are starting new things. They were a part of an institution that they just kind of felt like I don't think I can stay here for whatever reason. But they they want to build something. Or I have many friends even in the city I live in who have planted churches. How would you counsel someone who's going? I want to build a thing, or I'm starting a thing, and or I'm planting a church, and I want to do it well. I want to put accountability in place, um, and I want to have a sense of of all of the things you just described. But I also I, I'm starting a new thing. I'm not kind of building something that already exists.
0: Well, I think it goes back to what we were talking about uh, a few minutes ago about having the both positive and negative models. We need that biblically. Often there is uh, scripturally um, a word that says something along the lines of remember when this happened. That was, you know, 1 Corinthians 10, that was written for your instruction mm. upon whom the ends of the ages have have come. So you need those negative uh, models. And the situation that you described here sounds like uh, they have them. They know, okay, I don't want to fall into that again. But they also need some positive models that are able to show how these things can be used with health. The things that can be. I mean, there there are things that you say. We need to get rid of that and never go back to that again. But you need to have that model and also to sort of be checking yourself and saying how much of this is just reacting and how much of it is something else. You have people around you that you trust enough to tell you that and also to show you when you're actually building something new. As opposed to just responding to, to something that was happening uh, in your past. And that's not just, I mean, that's not just the case with institutions. That's the case with marriages. That's the case with parenting. I know people who parent their children entirely out of a sense of, I don't ever want to do to my children what my parents did to me. Well, that's good. That's actually, in, in a lot of those cases, that's that's actually a good thing. But they don't have a model of saying, okay, but here's a way to parent in a healthy way. And so they start to think that success is not doing what dad did or institutionally success is not being the toxic system that I came out of rather than, than actually being in health. And I think you just have to constantly be asking yourself that question.
1: Yeah. Uh, That sounds so much like one of my favorite parts of your new book. Um, Towards the end, you were making this comparison um, between talking to someone who's a trauma-informed counselor and realizing there's a sense in which the last few years have been traumatic for many in the church individually, but also, you know, communally. And I think that is also why people have such a strong emotional response to it. And then the line that you kind of repeated from this person was, what is not repaired is repeated. Yeah. And I love that because I do, I see that in many of my own peers of like, there hasn't been lament over things. There hasn't really been work to deal with what that meant for you or for your family. And I'm even thinking of my own church, my own community that has a lot of people who have been really hurt by the church. It sounds similar to yours of like, there's a lot of hope here, but it is a lot of people bringing a lot with them. What would that repair to kind of prevent that repeating? What would that repair look like? Either for individuals, someone listening who's like, oh my goodness, I hadn't even considered that I might need to do some work to repair um, personally, or for someone who's going, I'm sticking it out in this church and it's been really hard, but I do think we need to do some repair before we just move full steam ahead and try and and do the new thing, but might actually end up repeating what we've done in the past.
0: I think pay attention. What we need to, to pay attention to is, again, there are almost no situations Where people are gathering together like supervillains in a lair and saying, let us do evil together. Mm -hmm. That happens sometimes, but it doesn't usually happen. And so you need to pay attention to that enough to say, how did we get here? What does this actually look like? And have an honest look at what's uh, happening. Now, that's not enough, but it is necessary. And there's always going to be someone in the room who is going to say, if you honestly look at that, you're not talking about all the good things that are going on, or you're being disloyal, or you're just going to give ammunition to whoever the enemy is purported to be. They're always going to be those people, but you have to look at this before you uh, you can go forward. So for instance... Now, let me say this before I say this. I am not comparing these two situations. This isn't Godwin's law, but the German Christian movement in Germany during the Third Reich. I'm reading this, and you see all of these ways that there's kind of an appeal to masculinity. There's this—if you just go through all of these little sorts of things that people were doing in order to talk themselves into— Allying uh, with the Reich. And you ask, okay, how, how how does that happen? What does that do? And then you start to notice in your own life, wait, I'm kind of starting to make those adjustments. Uh, I, you, you sort of recognize it then when you see it, if you're paying attention. And so pay attention to that, have a a really honest look at what has happened and then say, okay, what now? Sometimes I think that what the problem is, is that people answer the "what now" too quickly because we don't like to be in that in-between phase where we say, "Okay, something has ended, but we don't exactly know what's beginning." But that's the way God works over and over and over again, and so there there should be a time where you're saying, "We don't know how to go forward," which means that we're kind of at the end of our own resources. That really needs to happen. And don't be afraid of that. And sometimes that's scary. So what people want to do is to say, okay, so here's the answer. Here's what we're going to do. And it goes badly.
1: It reminds me at the beginning of the book, you have this Wendell Berry quote that I loved about, you know, big problems requiring lots of small solutions and how that might offend our sense either of scale or of drama. And I see that sometimes with people who have a lot of good passion for what's happening wrong in the church and what could be going better and want to create something, but just seem intent on going, well, at least the scale of what we did in the past, I need to replicate. And then don't consider that maybe it's not. That's not the part that needs to continue on. Maybe there are lots of small solutions that we need to think about.
0: Yeah, and you think about. Uh, I, I remember. I think it was William F. Buckley uh, who said this. Maybe not, but who was talking about ex-communists uh, who were in the conservative movement post uh, World War II, and said so there are really two kinds of ex-communists. There are the ex-communists who look back and say, "Okay, I was." captive to an awful authoritarian uh, ideology, and I never want to go back to that again. Therefore, I'm going to really weigh uh, the situation. And then there are those ex-communists who say, that was a really awful uh, totalitarian ideology, so I need to go and find another one. (laughs) That's the opposite of, of that. So with the second, what you end up with are people with all of the uh, Stalinist show trial uh, tendencies. They're just doing it from another angle. <laughs> and, but those, the, those people in the first category um, were really necessary in terms of, of coming in and saying, no, because we all have a tendency once something is out of sight for a little while. To think, well, it wasn't that bad, and uh, they were there to say, no, this was that bad, and I and I know I was I was in it. There was this woman I read one time who was talking about having been an alcoholic, um, and putting a little note on her window or on her uh, mirror that said, "It really was that bad," because she knows that she would get to a point just because it's so distant that she would think, you know. It wasn't all that bad. And she would find herself drifting back in that direction. And she had to remind herself, this really was awful and you don't want to go that way again.
1: We've been asking everyone this season um, a question as we approach an election season that will, again, be challenging and divisive. How you would counsel people to prepare, Um, not really in terms of kind of researching candidates or party platforms, but in terms of how people could prepare emotionally, spiritually, relationally, what could we do in our immediate communities? What things could we practice in ourselves, even if it's just get through this season, but hopefully so that we can be good witnesses to Christ? I mean, not just in you know, the ballot box, but also in our communities, our relationships. How would you counsel people now that we're at least a little bit out from the real heat of it, but very quickly approaching it to prepare spiritually or emotionally?
0: I don't know. <laughs> and, and and the reason I say that is because I actually don't know what's ahead of us. So I think what a lot of us are doing is thinking about uh, 2024 as a replay of 2020 or a replay of, of 2016. And there are a lot of ways where it's easy to think that because you essentially have the same candidates. But... It is a different situation. It's a more perilous situation. There are all kinds of things that, if we had said, you know, in twenty nineteen, okay, let's prepare for twenty twenty, we would have had no idea. Uh, I mean, if if somebody had had talked about the COVID pandemic, uh, they would have sounded like an end times crank. Or if they had, if I had said at any point. OK, what we're going to end up with is a president of the United States uh, trying to stop a presidential election from being certified by sending a mob of people to ransack the Capitol. I mean, that would have, if you, it would have sounded just absolutely hysterical, mm-hmm. uh, including to me. I'm not not saying that. (laughs) And and so we really don't know what what we do know is that we're in a really perilous sort of time. Mm -hmm. And I'm concerned about political violence. I'm concerned about those things. But what I would say in terms of the council is not so much do this, do this, do this. It is there are two kinds of psychologies at work. And. What I find often with the healthiest Christians is that the psychology is to say, let's just be quiet and still until it passes. And you can't, there's no way to do that. There, or to say, uh, well, if we just uh, show this much commitment and loyalty to something that's going in the wrong direction, then they'll listen to us when we get to the really, really perilous part that doesn't work. And and I think we've seen that uh, over the past uh, several years. And so there needs to be less fear and a sense of accommodation, because there is no way to get around it. I mean, ultimately, you're going to have to listen to a spirit informed conscience. And there's just no way there are no bunkers to hide in.
1: How would you um, counsel someone maybe who is in the charge of people, a pastor or a Sunday school teacher of kids or, you know, someone, a mom and a family to help people be less afraid um, to, to cultivate that in themselves, maybe, but also in others. I'm imagining people listening going, I would love if my church would be less afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, but so far, all of my sermons, just repeating the words of Jesus, have not, have not quite yeah. drilled that into their skulls. Any wisdom there for, for either for us to, to cultivate a lack of fear, but also for us who, who feel responsible for others?
0: All it takes are a few people who are willing to sort of be a mini Hebrews 11 for the other people who are watching, which is to say it is possible to live a life of uh, integrity the best you can in very trying situations and to survive. Maybe not to survive in the same way that you were before, but to actually survive and, and thrive. And once that starts to happen then you have a sense of possibility that's coming uh, to everyone else. So what we can't do, what none of us can do is to say, okay, we need to make sure that we fix the church and American democracy before November 2024. Uh, We we can't do that. But what I can do is to say, okay, what am I? I doing? And then who are the people who are going to be overhearing this, who actually just need a little bit of literal encouragement uh, to move forward? And and sometimes that's really hard to see. But I think we're going to have different issues than what we had in 2016, and even in, in 2020, because a lot of what was so traumatic about both of those elections is that you had people who were looking at each other and saying, "I don't even know who you are anymore." I I I, I can't imagine why you would uh, uh, do this or not do this. I think we're at a point now where we have a really clear-eyed view in some really sad ways, but we have a really clear-eyed view of that. And so, if mean, for instance, somebody was saying to me, "What's it like to have people who come up and yell at you?" um, about my uh, thoughts on, on Trump. And, And I said, that almost never happens anymore. And the reason it doesn't happen is because I'm so well known for what I believe about that, that people have kind of built that in. If they're going to talk to me, uh, whether they agree with me or not, they've kind of built in that they're willing to, to live with it. And the people who have it, so I think a lot of that is clearer. But I think that that leads to some other problems, which is the kind of normalization that we've had of cruelty and of violence in shockingly explicit ways. That I don't know where that's going to to land.
1: Well, I think what you were just describing of a a model to look at that gives us some sense of of hope of someone you know, living virtuously with integrity. I think you have done that for a lot of people. So thank you, Dr. Moore.
0: Well, thank you.
1: The Disruptors is a production of interversity Press. For more information on any IVP titles mentioned on this episode, visit IVPress.com and use code IVPOD25. That's IVPOD25 for 25% off. Sound engineering by Honest Podcasts. Our producers are Andrew Bronson, Mila Kim, Helen Lee, and Travis Albritton. Our production assistant is Isis Tolson. And I'm your host, Caitlin Schess. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the IVP YouTube channel. And leave a rating and review to support the podcast. God.